the BBC carried a documentary not too long ago on an attack on a mall a few years ago in Kenya, Nairobi, Kenya. It was graphic, it was brutal, it was upsetting. It showed how gunmen came into this mall and began to go from room to room, killing men, women, and children without mercy. At one point, the documentary shows that they came to a group of women cowering in fear. And they asked the question, who among you is a Christian? Nobody spoke. But one woman spoke up. And he shot her in the head right there and then. She said, I am a Christian. She could have kept quiet, and perhaps she would have been spared. But here was a moment when she was required to testify about her faith in God. And she declared herself to be a Christian and was executed there and then. Most of us will never have to lose our lives for our faith. But like this woman, all of us are called upon to be faithful in our witness to Jesus Christ, whatever comes. It is this theme of faithfulness to Jesus that drives this final chapter of Paul's epistle or second epistle to Timothy. It is a summons to faithfulness to Christ and the gospel. And Paul, as you recall, begins second Timothy with a call to be strong in the grace of our Lord. And he talks about those who persevere in their profession like soldiers and runners and farmers and encourages Timothy to diligence. In the second half of the chapter, and even on to chapter 2, Paul warns against the danger of false teachers. And in chapter 3, you remember those memorable words where he says, in the last days, perilous times will come. He reminds Timothy that in the in the perilous times, God has given to him his word, his inspired word, which is able to enable him to teach and to instruct. But here in chapter 4, Paul is in prison. He's about to die, and he summons his strength once more, and he calls Timothy again, finally, at least in this writing, to faithfulness. He gives him a charge, a charge from a dying man, a charge to faithfulness. You will notice at least three things about the charge. 
First of all, the charge, the basis of his charge to Timothy. Secondly, you're going to notice the content of his charge. And thirdly, you're going to notice the reason for his charge. He begins chapter 4 by saying, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. The basis of the charge. Paul uses the term charge, which means literally a solemn declaration regarding truth. Paul utters this term charge in the emphatic because it's the first word in the sentence in the Greek. I charge you. And he charges him, he calls him to a solemn obligation. And he presents to Timothy the Lord God and the Lord Jesus Christ as witnesses to this charge. I charge you therefore, all scriptures given by inspiration, you're going to be facing these deceivers in perilous times. You have the word of God, I charge you therefore. And the witness that I have placed a charge before you is God himself. The God. He says, I charge you before God in the presence of God and in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is before God who called Paul as an apostle in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. He's the one Paul described as a father. The one whom Paul says, my ancestors and I served in chapter 1 verse 3. He's the one who gave Timothy the gift of pastoral ministry and tells him to fan it into flame in verse 6 of chapter 1. He's the one who gives a spirit not of fear but of love and of a sound mind in verse 7 of chapter 1. He is the one before whom Timothy must present himself approved as a workman who needs not be ashamed in chapter 2 verse 15. The one whose foundation stands firm having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. He's the one who breathes out scripture. In other words, he is the sovereign and almighty God. I charge you before God. But he charges him, secondly, he calls him to this sacred obligation, not only in the presence of God, but in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. I charge you, therefore, before God. And before the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the same Savior who died for our sins. Who came into the world 2,000 years ago. God in flesh. Suffered on the cross. And died for our sins. I charge you before God and before the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who died for our sins and is risen again from the dead. But Paul says here, I charge you before the Lord Jesus Christ. Who will judge the living and the dead? It's important that we know who Jesus is. Because he is the Lord. The one who came into the world. The one who died. The one who rose from the dead. And who has ascended into heaven. And will come again. I want you to know that. Though there may be many prophets and teachers and gurus in the world. They do not compare to Jesus. Because Jesus Christ is king of kings and lord of lords. That he is reigning in heaven. And Paul says he is coming again. I charge you before the Lord. 
before the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead. He will judge the living and the dead. In Acts chapter 10, verse 42, we are told, And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which God, that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of the quick and the dead, of the living and the dead. And Peter says that they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. I charge you before God and before the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead. That there is indeed a judgment to come where every man and every woman and every boy and girl must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That we must give an account for what we have done in our bodies. We live in a world where sometimes we wonder about the justice system. Justice has never, seem, never seems to be done. Our justice system does not seem to be blind. It nods and winks for those, it seems, who have the money and the clout. But there is a day of reckoning when we will all stand before King Jesus. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead. You see, there is no escape from Jesus. So that even if a person dies and is cremated, and we think that that's the end of the person, even if they were to die at sea and be gobbled up by fish, even they, the Lord Jesus Christ, will bring again. He will bring back body and soul, and all men will stand living and the dead. They will be raised again to stand before him. I charge you. The basis of the charge then is the presence of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul describes him as the judge of the living and he will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and at his kingdom. That he will come to judge and he will come to establish his kingdom. Here then is the basis of his charge. In other words, Timothy, you need to listen to me because this charge is given in the presence of God and in the presence of Christ who is coming again to judge the living and the dead and to establish his kingdom. The basis of the charge. But what is the content, the content of the charge? What is he charging him to do? What is he laying upon him this solemn obligation to do? Well, in verse 2, he says, preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. He's called in simple word to preach the word. It's a call to ministry and a call to service. The verb caruso means to proclaim, to herald publicly. This is the term caruso. It was not necessarily a biblical term. It was a term that was used in Greek. And it was used for those who would go ahead of the king to announce his coming. They were like a town crier. The one who engages in caruso was one who was like a town crier who made an announcement. And he says, you are to make an announcement. 
You're to preach the word. You're to preach the word. He's not only called to preach, he's called to preach the word. True preaching is a preaching of the word of God. The word of God is the expression of the will of God. It is through his word that we know what God intends for us. It is in his word that we know of our Savior and our salvation. So preach the word. Now he tells him that in the preaching of the word of God, that this preaching of the word of God requires availability or preparedness. He says, be ready in season and out of season. That, that, is, that, that is, Timothy must be like, perhaps in our day, somebody who works in the emergency service. I, I, I can't say what goes on in fire departments and so on. You know, sometimes you look at the, the firemen, they're just there talking and milling around, and you don't, don't really look like they're waiting for anything. They're enjoying a good time. I, 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 I know that in certain countries where there are firemen, for instance, and by the way, if you're a fireman here, know, know that I'm not picking on you at all, not, not by any means. But they, they will be playing games, board games. But you see, even though they may be engaged in some, some other activity, those in the emergency service are always geared. They're waiting for, a, at a moment's notice, their services are required. They are prepared to move at the call. And Timothy is to be like that. He is to stand ready to preach the word in season and out of season. He must be ready to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ who is a savior of the world. He must do so when it is convenient and when it is inconvenient. He must do so when men want to hear and when they do not want to hear. Be ready to preach the word in season or out of season. He must seize the moment to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Preach the word in season and out of season. Now Paul tells him that in proclaiming the word of God, there are things in which he must engage and it would require of him that preaching the word of God involves reproof or correction. So he says to him, preach the word of God, be ready in season and out of season, convince or, or correct. Preaching the word of God must involve correction of error. He must reprove. He must bring that which is hidden into light. He must set that which is awry straight. But preaching, he says, not only involves correction or reproof, and then NKJ has it convinced, but he says he must also rebuke. And here, this is a stronger word than merely correct or reprove. It refers to a stern warning. It involves a strong warning or prohibition to immediately cease an activity that is inappropriate or sinful. He must rebuke error and sin. And he says to him, he must not only preach the word of God by correcting and rebuking, but by exhorting. And there the word there is encouraging. Parakaleo really is that verb from, from which we get this word. He must be in, in, involved in encouragement. And do you know, my dear friends, that in the preaching of the word of God, there is great encouragement. Amen. 
Because the word of God is like a bomb to the soul. The word of God tells us that we have a father in heaven who loves us and who cares for us, who reigns over the church for our good. That all that God is doing in the world, he's doing it for the good of his people. He's doing it for you and for me who belong to him. The word of God contains the great promises of old. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. That you are mine. You are the apple of my eyes. That one day you will be with me. There are great promises that God has given in his word. The man of God is called to preach the word of God and to encourage the saints of God. He is to be told that he is not an orphan, that he is not left alone, that God has given to him his Holy Spirit who will guard him and comfort him. He must rebuke, but he must also encourage. You need that, you know, you know, you know, you need a balance in preaching. There are, there are some preachers who it seems that whatever they say comes out as a rebuke. It's always rebuke. And so God's people are always discouraged. And then there are some people, some pastors who love encouragement. And so they never say, stop. They never say, behave yourself. Turn away from sin. There's no rebuke. We need that. There must be a correcting of, of error. There must be a rebuking of sin. And there must be an encouragement of souls. Preach the word. That's the content of the charge. It is a charge to preach, which revolves, which involves correction, rebuking, and encouraging. He must preach the word. He must not cut corners. He must not provide half-truth. Notice he says here, preach the word, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. That in preaching the word of God, he must be patient. He must keep on doing the same thing over and over and over again. And he must do so with all long-suffering and doctrine. That he must continue to preach the truth of God. That he must continue to hold up the doctrines of the word of God to the people of God. He must continue to do so in perseverance and in fidelity to truth. The content of the charge then is to preach the word and to do so by correcting, by rebuking, and by encouraging. And he must persevere in this and persevere in sound doctrine. It is only in preaching sound doctrine that we can have sound Christians. It is not possible to have Christians who are living under Impure doctrine, and they are imbibing impure doctrine that they can, however, produce sound lives. It requires sound teaching to have sound Christians. What we see in the basis of the charge, it is the presence of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, the judge of the living and the dead. We've seen the content of the charge, which is to preach the word. But then in verses 3 to 8, we see the reasons for the charge. And the reasons are given by the word for. Twice you will notice that Paul begins a sentence with for. In verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Why must he preach the word? Why must he preach the word in season and out of season? For the time will come 
when they will not endure sound doctrine. So the first reason that Timothy is to preach the word, it is because people will abandon sound doctrine. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. There were false teachers in the church in Ephesus. And these were duping we Christians. These were those who were surrendering themselves to worldly values and sinful passions. And these people were imbibing false teachings because they had itching ears. They were gathering to themselves teachers that they wanted to hear. Teachers who would tell them the things that they find convenient to listen to. They will, they will, they will find preachers to scratch them where they itched. They won't, they won't get preachers to tell them the truth. They want to have preachers who will tickle their ears. Who will tell them the good things only. Who will tell them about how wonderful they are and build them up with positive doctrine. But will not remind them of judgment and sin and the things that make for godliness. So Paul says he must preach the word. Because some will abandon Sound doctrine. He goes on to say that not only will they abandon sound doctrine, not only will they depart from the word of God, but that they will turn to myths and fables. Chapter 1 of 1 Timothy is the same thing. These people were imbibing in myths. They were imbibing myths. They had turned away from the truth of God's word. They had turned away from sound doctrine and they began to believe the things that were folly. Preach the word. Why? Verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables, to myth, to genealogies, to things that are inconsequential. It is precisely because of this that there are those who will abandon the word of God that they are to preach the word of God, that Timothy is to preach the word of God. Paul charges him again. He charges him again and in verse 5 he says, but you, emphatic, there are people who will be turning away from the truth. They will be finding preachers to tell them what they want to hear. But you, but you, Timothy, whatever else they may be doing, you, you, you must not run with the crowd. You be watchful in all things. Literally, you be sober in all things. I want you, Timothy, when men are abandoning the truth and they are running after teachers who will indeed scratch them where they each will tell them what they want to hear. I want you to, Timothy, I want you to keep your head. I want you to be sober. I want you to remain unmoved. I do not want you to run after these. I want you to be watchful. Be sober. Keep yourself committed to the truth. It's a charge. Be watchful in all things. 
He says, I want you to be watchful. Stay sober, stay alert. Lest you follow these. Think carefully. He says, moreover, not only must you be alert, he says, that you must endure affliction. You will always have affliction. If you're going to preach the word of God to people who don't want to hear the truth, they're not going to, they're not going to welcome you with open arms. So he says, endure affliction. You know, throughout this epistle and throughout his, the pastoral epistles, he calls upon endurance, endure, sound. They will not endure sound doctrine. You must endure affliction. They do not endure sound doctrine. You endure affliction. Do the work of an evangelist. That is, keep on proclaiming the truth of the gospel. Fulfill your ministry. This last charge encapsulates all he has been saying to him about preaching the word of God. Doing so in season and out of season. Correcting, rebuking, and encouraging. He's simply saying, fulfill your ministry. Why? So the first reason to preach the word, it is because there are those who will abandon truth. They will abandon the sacred truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. He must keep faithful. He must keep on proclaiming the word of God in enduring hardship. He must fulfill his ministry. The second reason that he's given to preach appears by another occurrence of four. You see that in verse six. Four. I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but to also to all who have loved his appearing. What's the second reason? Beginning with four. In, simply, in simple words, he must proclaim the word because there are those who are going to abandon the truth. And secondly, he must proclaim the word because God will one day reward faithful service. Paul, before he gets to the matter of reward, says, I am already being poured out. He's using his own example, his own life and example of faithfulness. He reminds Timothy that he is approaching death. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And he makes an allusion to the Old Testament. And the act of pouring wine at the base of the altar as a gift to God. Paul sees his martyrdom. They are going to kill him. But he sees his approaching death as a sacrifice to God. As an offering to God. He says, he says indeed, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure, uh, an engaging word, the time of my departure, really the word there is the time of my loosing, my loosing. He sees death as a time when he has been set free, set free from the limitations imposed upon him in this body, set free like a ship loosened from its mooring. He's delivered from the restrictions of this life, delivered from the inclination to sin. He says, the time of my departure is at hand. 
He's talking about his faithfulness. In verse 7, he sums up his life of service to God with three metaphors that are known to us, heard often at the ordination services of men caught in the ministry. He's telling about his life of faithfulness. He says, I have fought a good fight. He compares his life to that of an athlete in an athletic competition. I have fought a good fight. And literally, I have struggled the good struggle. And behind this term struggle, it's the verb agonizomai, from which we get agonize. I have been engaged in an agonizing struggle. And the struggle that Paul refers to, it is the struggle related to the proclamation of the gospel of performing the ministry which has been given to him. I have fought a good fight. In fact, the verb that he uses here is in the perfect tense. Because the Apostle Paul sees this now as a conclusion of his ministry. I have fought a good fight. I have been engaged in a battle for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by the grace of God, I have waged a good warfare. He changes language slightly. He says, I have finished the race. Still, he's maintaining this athletic metaphor. I have finished the race. And what he's claiming here, that in the proclamation of the word of God, he did not quit. Though he was faced with many obstacles, though he had many difficulties and could have easily been discouraged a million times, he kept on going in this battle for truth, in proclaiming Christ, I have finished the race. I have prosecuted the task given to me until the end. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. And if we are not clear what he means by fighting the good fight and finishing the race, he says, I have kept the faith. This final description is indeed an explanation of what it means to have fought the good fight and finished the race. I have kept the faith. I don't think that Paul means that he has kept his own faith. Because we don't keep our faith. It's the Lord who keeps it for us. So when he says, I have kept the faith, I take this to mean he has kept the faith objectively. That is the body of truth, the gospel. It means that he has been true to the sacred trust that has been delivered to him. He has not departed from an iota of the word of God. I have kept the faith. He has lived and preached the good news of Jesus Christ and not departed. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Why is he telling Timothy? He's saying, Timothy, in other words, by God's grace, I have been faithful to the task God has given me. And here's why it's important. In verse 8, finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not to me only, but to all who have loved his appearance. You see, this is the reason why he must preach. Because if he remains faithful in his calling, one day he will enter into glory and receive the reward from God. Paul therefore uses himself an example of faithfulness to encourage Timothy 
to do so. And Paul describes the reward he will receive. He calls it a crown of righteousness. In the ancient times when people engage in athletic competition and they run, they, they didn't run for money. In, in the early Olympic Games, they weren't, being, they weren't paid money. They didn't even get a gold medal. What did they get? They got a crown, a wreath, made from what? Celery. Well, you know, I mean, can you imagine that? Just taking some shrubs and bushes and plaiting them together and putting it on your head, that's your crown. And guys going to training from years. People put their kids in the gymnasium from they were <laughs> yeah, high, knee high. And they were training and they trained them for years to get a wreath. To get a few branches woven together and put on their head. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 says this. And every man that striveth for the mastery is tempered in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. But we are incorruptible. James called the crown that we will receive the crown of life. Which includes incorruptibility, immortality. Paul says, henceforth there is laid up for me. A crown of righteousness. This crown of righteousness, Paul says, will be given to me in that day when the Lord, the righteous judge, will come, not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Now, it's important that we, we do not walk away from here thinking that the righteousness we're going to receive from Jesus Christ is a payment for whatever work we have done. No, it is a reward and a reward of grace. We are going to receive a righteous, a righteous, a righteousness as a gift from the Lord, a crown of righteousness. Because our service for him would have proven that we knew him. You see, the sign of a believer is that there must be, if he has faith, there must be works. And so his good works. His faithfulness in serving God will be a sign that he knew the Lord Jesus Christ and he will receive a reward at the end because this reward will vindicate him and will prove that he indeed knew the Lord. The righteousness then he will receive is not a direct reward for his faithfulness. It is a gift. It is indeed a gift of grace. In fact, we don't deserve anything for what we do for the Lord. You know, we are servants. That's what we are called to do. So any reward we get from the Lord will be by grace. But Paul says, nevertheless, notwithstanding all of this, there will be a reward at the end of the day for those who are faithful to the Lord. Uh, that, that should thrill us, you know that, my friends. And he says, this will be given to all. All who love his appearance. All who look for his coming. My friends, let me say to you this evening, you must fulfill your ministry. I know that in this context it is referring to the preaching ministry. And we who are called to be pastors and preachers must preach the word. All of us are called upon to witness and to bear witness. We also must preach the word of God in season and out of season. 
We live in a world where men and women will not endure sound doctrine. We often hear, don't, don't preach to me. That's what we hear. But we are called upon to preach the word. In season and out of season. When it is convenient and when it's not convenient. And we must do so. Because in, the, in these days, men will not endure sound doctrine. Years ago, centuries ago, Amos the prophet says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but, a, but of hearing the word of the Lord. We are living in these days. when there is a famine in the land, not of bread, a thirst in the land, not for water, but indeed a famine for the word of God. You must preach the word. You must declare the truth of God in weakness. And this requires that we be not faint-hearted before a rebellious and hard-hearted and antagonistic people. It means that we must be prepared to face hardship. Just trace the Old Testament. Read the stories of the prophets in the Old Testament. Read the book of Nehemiah when he did the work of the Lord. While he was building the, building the wall, there were people there laughing at him. What is he doing? What is he building? Even a fox, if it jumps on this wall, will fall down. How, how, how more discouraged can you be? They went and hired people, hired those who belonged to the religious class to, to make him afraid. And you look at Jeremiah and you look at Ezekiel, you look at Isaiah, you will see that right throughout the Old Testament... There's always been opposition to those who proclaim God's word. And that was then true. It is still true today. But you and I need to know that even though we may not all be called to be pastors and evangelists, we must fulfill our ministry. God has given us, each one of us, a task to do. And we must keep at it. Though there may be discouragement and hardship. We must keep at it. We must fulfill the ministry which God has given to us. We must be faithful to the calling that he has laid upon our hearts. Let me be very clear, my beloved friends. If you are a Christian, you must be involved in some ministry or the other. One of the reasons that Christians, some Christians are so unhappy is because they're not busy enough. Listen. When you are busy for the Lord and busy in working, you have very little time to feel sorry for yourself. You're too tired to feel sorry for yourself, I tell you. 